Welcome to the fourth installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews, reviews, and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm your host, Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. This Ear to the Ground will focus on what happens when a farm family decides to dig up a little agronomic history. What Mike and Jennifer Ruprecht unearthed on their farm was not pleasant, but it motivated them to work harder than ever at being good stewards of the land. First, a little background. The Ruprechts farm the rolling hills north of Lewiston in southeast Minnesota. The land they farm can be prone to erosion and runoff, and numerous efforts have been made over the years to reduce soil degradation in the area. Mike and Jennifer have been farming together on this land since they were married in 1983. They raise grass-fed beef and pastured chickens, as well as corn, soybeans, oats, and hay. Their land has been certified organic since 2001, and their beef is certified as being sustainably raised by Food Alliance Midwest. The Ruprecht operation, which they call Earth Be Glad Farm, markets the beef and chickens through direct sales and farmers markets. Some of their products are also sold through retail stores in the area. In the mid-1990s, the Ruprechts were one of the farm families that became involved in the monitoring project, a unique initiative coordinated by the Land Stewardship Project. The monitoring project brought together farmers, conservation professionals, and scientists to discuss ways of gauging the impact sustainable farming methods, such as managed rotational grazing, have on the land and the farmers themselves. It is difficult to overstate the long-term impacts the monitoring project has had. The monitoring team eventually developed the monitoring toolbox, a comprehensive monitoring guide for farmers and others that's been distributed all over the world. The monitoring team's work also has had a profound impact on farm policy, particularly the Conservation Security Program, considered one of the most innovative federal agriculture initiatives ever. Today, the work of the monitoring team forms the basis for the Multiple Benefits of Agriculture Project which is measuring how diverse agricultural systems can benefit communities on a watershed-wide basis. On a blustery day in mid-November, I visited the Ruprecht farm and talked with them about the time they discovered the real impact certain farming practices can have on land. As you will hear, land stewardship permeates everything they do on their farm. We had, um, as, as one of the projects on the monitoring team, we had... Um, George Polk, a retired soil scientist from the uh, Soil Conservation Service out here, and he had a 60-inch long soil probe. And we were walking out in our pastures, um, I believe with the intention of identifying soil types and such, and he was taking probes on some of the hillsides and finding out that we had a, about a 15-inch or in a 15-inch probe, the top 11 inches were the top soil, and he identified that as a Mount Carroll silt loam, which I was familiar with from my soil maps. And then a little farther away, he found a 16-inch deep top soil, which was, was Port Byron, which is the other, the two most common soil types on our farm. And then um, we went down in the bottom, the bottom of the hill down draw, or the valley, if you might call it that, the low part out, low part out in the field, and he took a soil sample out there and he went down 48 inches and, and before four feet. four feet before he found the original topsoil down in the bottom of the field. Meaning that that much soil had washed in from earlier farming practices. 
hopefully prior to the time we were farming it. Right. But over probably a period of, what, 125 to 150 years or so of farming. Yeah. That was a real eye-opener to me. To, to look at parts of my farm, parts of my fields, and see that four feet of soil were laying down in the bottom that had come off the hillsides laying on top of the original dark black topsoil that we finally found 48 inches deep. Yeah. And I know that years ago the farmers, uh, when they first started farming the land around here and grew row crops, they check planted their corn so they could cultivate both north and south and east and west. And they cultivated seven or nine times in a season. And if it had, you had just gotten done cultivating up and down the hill and you've got a three-inch rain that night I can see how the topsoil yeah. could move but it's just amazing to think that that much of it moved that is amazing that, to think about uh, it actually because it's not something you notice you're not seeing big gullies in the land, you're not seeing a uh, mass amount of soil moving in one storm but over time for that uh, to occur and I have always been very conscious of erosion I, I simply will not accept any of it but I've seen it on this farm years ago when we tilled fields and didn't leave a waterway where we should have and I and I still see it unfortunately today on farms around the area here where they won't leave a waterway or the fields are, are too big and it's all row crops all tilled at once or they they haven't got the hay growing because they don't have the the animals that need hay it's corn and it's beans um, but we we can't let the the soil erode and expect to have uh, something here in the future that's going to support our children and grandchildren. You know, one thing I find really interesting is that in one of your pastures here you have this um, structure that was built in 1934 by the Civilian Conservation Corps and uh, it uh, shows, I guess, that erosion was enough of a problem that they came in and built this stone, I'm not sure what it's called, but it's a way to prevent uh, Erosion, but uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how? I think the other thing that's interesting is, uh, is it's obvious the thing isn't needed anymore. You, you guys, your practices have kind of made something like that uh, uh, moot. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about that, where that's at, and this this one we call a grade control structure, and I believe it was built there to uh, slowly let the water drop down to a lower level without causing more soil erosion, which if there was water dropping over a couple of feet would continue to erode and continue to move backwards where that stream of water was running and um, now there are two or three feet of soil that has been deposited on the up upstream side wow. of that structure um, and of course we've got everything in grass down there now so I, yeah. it's, it's neat to look at and it's got a real neat marble stone uh, that they put right in the wall that identifies the year it was built, 1934, and the Civilian Conservation Corps from Lewiston, Minnesota, with their number, which I don't recall the number. Yeah. But, uh, was you was this uh, farm owned by your family that at that time? My parents bought this farm from my dad's first cousin in 1967. Okay. And that's when we when I first came over here to this farm. And Jennifer, you were saying that there was there's uh, three or four others in this uh, in that same kind of 
water wash uh, watershed. Yeah, the, the same, yes, the, the exact same um, water run that would continue from our the dam we call it. Right. Uh, there are a couple more structures downstream that are even bigger than the one we have, and they're they're in they're in pasture land and trees now. You know, trees yeah. have grown up in them, but you can take that walk, and it's it's rather interesting to see what they did and and. It would be interesting to know how they determined which areas should have them, and if at that time you could see huge gullies or right. or just what the situation was. But um, it's it's unique to our place. Yeah, I'm it's really kind it's, of enjoy having it. Now. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a monument to to uh, you know at the time that was the way they dealt with conservation was put in a structure like that, just like terraces and other things were put in. And you guys have kind of shown that. Maybe you don't need to go to those extremes. You need to kind of take a couple steps back and look at the actual farming practices and maybe the way you're actually, what kind of plant structure you have on there, how many months out of the year it covers it, instead of maybe putting in a Band-Aid type solution that, that keeps it from washing. It's a really interesting example, and it'll probably be there forever. <laughs> exactly. I think we're, we're interested in looking at long-term Solutions, if you want to call it that, or looking at the entire ecosystem and seeing what clues you can take from nature as to what should be done there yeah. as well. I wanted to back up a little bit back to 1994 when you guys had found had uh, had done those uh, soil probes and found 48 inches of eroded soil down in the uh, bottomland. There, did you at the time you were already doing rotational grazing and? conservation tillage good rotations yeah. did we, you change anything after your, did you adjust a little bit after you, that or was you were you just more uh, more uh, motivated to do what you were doing even more I think it changed the awareness in my mind of, of how serious the problem could be if you weren't careful um, I, I believe in 94 we had just completed seeding down another huge chunk of our farm for pasture uh -huh. and so I took the last remaining cornfield out and seeded it down and had some 50 acres that I could now fence uh, straight and more or less square, which is the easiest and simplest way to fence. But um, one nice thing about my pastures that I discovered a long time ago was how important it is to have a water system out there so that animals can get water wherever they are w within each paddock. And my paddocks are about two acres in size and I have a water system with just a simple black plastic poly pipe running out there under the wire and then a garden hose and a float in a little tank. Okay. So wherever they are, they can go to that little tank and get their drink of water. If I didn't have that, they would walk either to a pond, which we don't have on our farm, or home to a water source. And as they walk, picture them going up the hill or down the next hill, and pretty soon you've got a cow path there where the, where the grass has been denuded from the foot traffic and then when it rains the water runs down the cow path and you've got a gully started. Right. Hmm. So I've discovered the importance of having the water system out there and now I can fence square straight paddocks regardless of the contour of the land because the cows don't pick a path and right. walk. They spread out across their two-acre paddock and eat everything generally within a day or two and then move to the next paddock and then we give our land a 20 to 30 day rest, maybe 40 day rest depending on the weather and the time of year and they come back in again and that's also how we, uh, one of the ways we're building up the organic matter in the soil is by 
removing the top growth with the animals, but picture the roots underneath every time there's an excess amount of roots that help build the soil and every time the top is eaten off the roots can slough off and build organic matter and start growing again and yeah. we usually do that six or maybe seven times through a growing season. Um, and that's what I was wondering is have you since uh, you back in 94 have you been doing some ongoing monitoring to kind of really look at if you're building up that organic matter and the, the soil structure? Uh, we did a lot of testing when we were part of the monitoring team mm-hmm. project, and I haven't done a lot since then, but I've got things saved uh, you know, right. in the file, and I would like to someday check some of these levels again, and especially to see if the organic matter has increased. One thing I have noticed is that our pastures have continued to get better every year they've been in pasture. Yeah. And I know you guys also, birds, have you've noticed more birds, haven't you, more grassland species uh, since you did the started the rotational grazing? And I think I had seen a bluebird maybe twice in my life before we had an extensive pasture system. Wow. And now um, we've observed bluebird migrations around the 30th, huh. of, 30th of September usually, end of September, early October. You can see flocks of wow. bluebirds, and they, I don't know if it becomes a stopping spot on their on their route or what, but it's its really amazing. Yeah, yeah, because people are quite concerned about bluebird populations. They just aren't what they used to be. We, we've also got lots of bobolinks every year in the summer, middle of summer, and that's a true grassland species yeah. that needs the, the grass from a pasture system because most all of the hay fields get cut three or four times every summer. And meadowlarks, both eastern and western, for some reason we've always had them on our farm, even before we had as much pasture as we have now. Uh-huh. Um, a couple of years out of the last ten or so, we've had dick sisals and uh, numerous sparrows, yeah, savanna many sparrows, sparrows, grasshopper sparrows. Um, what are some of the other ones? Oh, vesper sparrows. Vesper yeah. sparrow. yeah. I can't even identify all of them just at sight. But, little brown uh, jobs. Yeah, <laughs> little brown birds, right. Mm-hmm. So it's, oh, it's the, fun. The uh, eastern kingbird, which oh. is a flycatcher. Right. I never saw that one until I had cows out on the pasture. And that bird sits on the wire, and, and it'll dive off the wire and go catch flies. It's just a natural um, fly control. Yeah. Nature's way of dealing with something that, you know, a lot of farmers trying to find a way to keep the flies off the cows. Right. Nature has figured out a few of these things, too. So That's what you call a win-win situation. Yeah. (laughs) They don't get all the flies, but when I first discovered that bird on our farm, it was kind of exciting. Yeah. I've also been observing butterflies the last few years, especially in August and September. Uh, Probably I'm, I'm able to identify about 20 different types of butterflies now which is really fun and they just when the a pasture paddock is mature with clover blooming and alfalfa blooming it's it's really amazing how many there are you can just in one one visual span see a hundred butterflies yeah wow so i'm hoping that we're making up for the supposed um detriment that the bt <laughs> corn and maybe other butterflies. I don't know. Well, it sounds like uh, all the stuff that you're seeing 
is, is, I can tell it's adding a little bit to the quality of your life. Uh, it may not pay off economically, but you really enjoy seeing this stuff and feel proud that you maybe had something to do with it. Yeah, where mm. someone might have more entertainment value and getting on a motorized vehicle and riding through the woods, we prefer to walk our pastures. Yeah. Imagine having our customers come out and walk through corn and bean fields <laughs> and see what's going on out there. It's yeah. just so much more interesting to have the diversity of the pasture. Yeah. I mean, and we have some corn and some beans too that we grow organically, but to have about half of our farm in pasture and to see what comes back, what nature brings back after a number of years. It's a, it's amazing, and, and a lot of our customers will we do that a couple times a year. Invite some of them out and do a pasture walk, and go and look at the chickens, the laying hens out in the grass, and show them what we're doing here. That's great. It's uh, amazing how many people are very thrilled to see the animals out on pasture. Yeah, they they just don't experience it. If they have experienced it, it hasn't been up close and personal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The um, uh, I know that you had Whitewater State Park, the local state park here. Uh, Dave Palmquist, the naturalist, used to bring people out here. Mm-hmm. Yep, we take hay rides in the summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Now it's done more on our initiative than anything because we're, we've got a good customer base, and if we can yeah. have people anytime, they're welcome to come anytime. But we we sometimes plan it. And, um, did you guys? And so I just wanted to make sure I was clear on the history. You were uh, when you first started farming. Here, um, were you pretty much corn and soybeans then, or uh, um, when did you no, start farming? No here? soybeans. It was corn and oats and hay, and believe it or not, no pasture. No pasture at all. And, and we had dairy cows and hogs and beef cattle, mm-hmm. <laughs> and eventually we ended up with pretty much beef cattle, and then and then we added the poultry about what, ten years ago. I like and how Mike always used to tell people that we fi- finally figured out that grass likes to stand still and cows like to move. <laughs> <laughs> That's we, a good way of putting it. We, I guess because you were hauling it, I suppose, with the dairy, you were hauling. I always thought that our farm, our land, was too good for pasture. Now I realize the best land for corn or beans is also going to be your best pasture. No. But and we added the beans in uh, 1998 when we started our organic rotation. We needed to have a rotation where we only grew corn one year uh-huh. because we had been growing it two or three years in a row. Now we grow corn one year, followed by beans for one year, followed by uh, oats with the hay seeded down in it, and then it's hay for a couple of years, and then it goes back to corn. Wow. This is pretty uh, complicated. Yeah. Uh, the rotation. And, and it seems it, it's seems to work. We, we struggle with weeds like every other organic farmer does some years. You think you got it figured out in the next yeah. year. It's a surprise, but yeah. Well, the other thing I was impressed with when you were talking about some of the thought you put into your your uh, managed rotation system, it's not just some people who aren't familiar with it might think, well, yeah, they put a, they have one pasture for summer and one for fall, or it's, it's, you just turn the cattle out, but it's a pretty uh, sophisticated oh, system. It, it takes a lot of management. Absolutely amazing what a well-managed pasture will look like in September and October. And I, I took some pictures this year of our pastures in the fall and the grass-fed beef out there and took the pictures with me to the farmer's market to try to show people 
what 100% grass-fed beef looks like and what the quality of the pastures looks yeah. like because you can drive around in the summer and look at a continuously grazed, overgrazed, unmanaged, unrotated pasture and what do you see? Thistles. Hmm. A few other yeah, weeds. Like no blue gra- yeah. no grass because they've eaten the grass off every right. time it grew back an inch or two, they eat it off again. It cannot survive to continue to grow all summer. And then it has a very shallow root system also. We've got a diversity of 10 to 15 plant species. And I actually tried to seed that many because I looked at what nature does in a, in a native prairie. And there's 300 different plants out there. So, you know, diversity leads to stability. And we tried to seed a diverse mixture when we were seeding new pastures on our old cornfields. And just trying to imitate nature again. Right. By the way, it turns out the day the Rupricks did this interview, it was their 22nd wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary, Mike and Jennifer. Here's to many more on the land. Speaking of time passing, that's it for the fourth installment of Ear to the Ground. If you'd like to learn more about the monitoring project, visit www.landstewardshipproject.org backslash PR backslash 04 backslash ITN underscore 040201.html. That's a long one. I'll give it again. www.landstewardshipproject.org backslash PR backslash 04 backslash ITN underscore zero four zero two zero one dot html for more on the food alliance midwest food certification program see www.landstewardshipproject.org and click on the food and farm connection icon that's landstewardshipproject.org and then click on the food and farm connection icon this podcast is a new endeavor for the land stewardship project and we'd like to hear from you you can send your comments criticisms and suggestions to me Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. That's bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also get me on the horn at 612-729-6294. That's 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician and LSB staffer who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and would like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 